0: In Spurlock v. Estate of Ladd, 2023, ARC App. 253, the Arkansas Court of Appeals, in affirming a probate court distribution order, rejected many challenges, including that the trial court judge should have recused. Judge Gruber explained, quote, Appellate William Gregg Spurlock appeals from a decision of the Craighead County Circuit Court distributing the estate of his mother, Sherry Ladd, or Sherry. Mr. Spurlock raises three points on appeal. One, the circuit court erred in denying Mr. Spurlock's motion to recuse. Two, the circuit court erred in finding that the inventories and accountings filed by the estate's administrator were substantially compliant with the probate code. And three, the circuit court erred in finding that the estate's administrator had not breached his fiduciary duty. We affirm, end quote. Recusal. The appellant, who was an heir in this complex intestate case, argued various points in the three-day distribution hearing and on appeal, including whether the trial court should have recused because of bias or prejudice, whether bias was shown. Quote, Judges have a duty to hear a case unless there is a valid reason to disqualify. Peroni v. State 358, Arc Seventeen. This court will presume impartiality on the trial judge's part. Arkansas Code of Judicial Conduct Rule 211 governs recusal. It mandates: A judge shall disqualify himself or herself in any proceeding in which the judge's impartiality might reasonably be questioned, including but not limited to the following circumstances. 1. The judge has a personal bias or prejudice concerning a party or a party's lawyer or personal knowledge of facts that are in dispute in the proceeding. Arkansas Code of Judicial Conduct Rule 211A-1. As an initial matter, a review of the entire record does not demonstrate actual bias or prejudice on Judge Ritchie's part. See Peroni 358 at 24. During the distribution hearing, the circuit court overruled and sustained the objections of the parties fairly and did not make any disparaging comments to the parties or their counsel that would evidence any grudge. Regarding the distribution, it also does not demonstrate bias or prejudice that would have been caused by the show cause hearing or Judge Ritchie's investigation. Even though Mr. Spurlock never proposed an alternative distribution, the circuit court declined to adopt the the estate's proposed distribution in full. Jim and Mark both asked for reimbursements from the estate that were not granted. In reviewing the totality of the record, it is clear there was no abuse of discretion. Jim and Mark were left responsible for large debts, while Mr. Spurlock was not. Whether there was an appearance of bias Because there is no showing of actual bias or prejudice, we turn to the issue of the appearance of bias— Mr. Spurlock argues that the language in the circuit court's orders can be taken as evidence of the personal nature of the dispute. In the order regarding the sale of Black Oak, the circuit court stated, Based on Mr. Spurlock's testimony and his actions and inactions and behavior toward this matter, I find that Mr. Spurlock has demonstrated a lack of good faith toward the administration of this estate and toward the court, and I will comment that I am being generous in offering these choice words. Later, the contempt order stated, The court is not able to ascertain whether Mr. Spurlock's conduct is a result of what the court finds to be a narcissistic demeanor or whether it is due to his obvious ill will toward Jim. It is likely a combination of both. As in Peroni, the show cause hearing was a collateral matter that did not involve the final issue in the estate case. Additionally, as in Peroni, Mr. Spurlock had actually disobeyed an order of the court by not providing a weekly status update as to his efforts to obtain financing. He admitted this much during the show cause hearing. According to the contempt order, the circuit court relied on Mr. Spurlock's delay in carrying through with the purchase of Black Oak and his failure to report the loan status when holding him in contempt, rather than the conversation with the airline or anything else that happened during the show cause hearing. Although the circuit court included extraneous comments in the orders following the show-cause hearing, those two phrases do not rise to the level of requiring recusal due to a personal dispute. The comments were also referring to Mr. Spurlock's behavior in disregarding the circuit court's orders, not to behavior outside the context of the show-cause hearing. End of quote. Ex parte Communications the judge questioned Mr. Spurlock's statement as to why he could not appear for a hearing and telephoned an airline. There was no error in this instance. Mm. Quote Mr. Spurlock further argues that the circuit court's calling Southwest Airlines violated the prohibition against a judge investigating a factual matter independently and that he should have disclosed his investigation and his report to the prosecuting attorney before the distribution hearing commenced. The estate responds that, although the circuit court did contact Southwest Airlines to investigate the airline ticket, this fact had nothing to do with the matters that the circuit court had to decide in the probate matter. Instead, the investigation had to do with the collateral issue of whether Mr. Spurlock had been truthful about his reason for attending the show cause hearing by phone. Whether the appellate court could take judicial notice that appellant Spurlock pled guilty in a perjury case. The estate also asks this court to take judicial notice that Mr. Spurlock pled guilty in his perjury case and wrote a letter to Judge Ritchie to apologize for attempting to deceive the court. This court will not take judicial notice of the record in other cases. See Anderson v. State, 2011, Arc 488. We have not considered any proceedings, pleas, or other matters in the perjury case in coming to a decision in this case. End of quote. As to issuance of a show cause order below, the opinion reasoned, quote, here the judge issued the show cause order in response to which Mr. Spurlock admitted having violated the circuit court's prior orders. The contempt order entered by Judge Ritchie relied only on Mr. Spurlock's delay in carrying through with the purchase of Black Oak and his failure to report the loan status when it held him in contempt. No findings regarding the failure to appear in person, the conversation with Southwest Airlines, or the conversation with the prosecuting attorney were made by the circuit court. End of quote. Other Issues Accountings there were numerous other issues in this appeal. For instance, appellant challenged failure to conduct an annual accounting, but there was substantial compliance, which was sufficient. Quote, Within two months after being appointed, the administrator of an estate must file an inventory of all property owned by the decedent at the time of death, which includes a description of the property and the administrator's appraisement of the fair market value. Art Code and Section twenty-eight forty-nine one ten the administrator must correct any errors or omissions by filing a supplemental inventory or in a filed accounting additionally the personal administrator must file a verified account of his or her administration annually art code and section 2852103 the accountings must be accompanied by proper vouchers art code and section 2852104a2 The Circuit Court found that Jim was in substantial compliance with the inventory and accounting statutes. Mr. Spurlock disagrees with this finding, arguing that during the distribution hearing, Mr. Spurlock's counsel elicited from Jim several previously undisclosed items that should have been included in the inventories, as well as income that had not been previously disclosed that should have been included in the accountings. Mr. Spurlock subpoenaed documents from third parties to ascertain some of the information that would have been presented in the accountings, but Mr. Spurlock argues that should not have been his burden. The only witness Mr. Spurlock's counsel called at the distribution hearing was Matthew Knight, who is an accountant. Mr. Knight testified that the inventories and accountings were deficient and there was no way to verify them without supporting documentation. The circuit court stated in the distribution order that Mr. Knight's testimony did not give any significant help or guidance. The estate responds that it complied with all court orders to file inventories and accountings and that all the documents needed to verify the accountings were available to Mr. Spurlock. The opinion distinguished Price v. Price, 253 Arc 1124, a case relied upon by appellate. in the years following Price, the Supreme Court has held that no reversible error exists when there is substantial compliance with the statutory requirements, no evidence of wrongdoing, and there is no prejudice to the heirs. See Morris v. Cullifer, 306, Arc. 646, Petty v. Lewis, 285, Arc. 3, end of quote. Removal of the Administrator The appellate court affirmed the trial court judge's refusal to remove the administrator in writing, quote, Mr. Spurlock's final argument on appeal is that Jim breached his fiduciary duty to the estate and should have been removed as administrator. Because Jim had pledged his own real property and executed a personal guarantee to secure the loans owned by LFP, Mr. Spurlock argues he had a conflict of interest and should not have been able to serve as administrator. Additionally, Mr. Spurlock argues that Jim allocated the proceeds of a life insurance policy and the proceeds from the sale of his residence to pay off debt that would benefit Jim personally instead of the estate. Mr. Spurlock also alleges that Jim used more than $58,000 from LFP's loans to pay his personal expenses and that he sold some of the estate's property for less than it was worth. Mr. Spurlock argues that this was self-dealing without the circuit court's consent and is a violation of his fiduciary duty, even if unintentional. The estate responds that Mr. Spurlock never submitted any alternative distribution plan to the circuit court and notes that Mr. Spurlock does not attack any of the circuit court's findings of fact in his appellate brief. The estate further argues that Mr. Spurlock received a proportional share of all the family property that was owned by the estate. Finally, the estate argues that all the actions Jim took were in the estate's best interest, even if they were also in Jim's best interest, because those interests are were inextricably intertwined, and the circuit court was correct to look at the whole picture. For a breach of fiduciary duty to be grounds for reversal, the appellate must demonstrate prejudice. Jones v. Ballantine, 44, Arc App 62. This court will examine the facts as a whole and weigh the administrator's positive and negative actions to determine whether there is a definite and firm conviction a mistake has been committed and the administrator should have been removed. Taylor, 102, arc 92 at 103, end of quote. In this case, arguments for removal were unavailing. Quote, the estate property sales proceeds were used to pay the debt that LFP actually took out. The estate had a one-third interest in LFP. The sales and payments toward LFP's debts kept the remaining assets of the estate safe from foreclosure or bankruptcy. Further, Jim sold several parcels of real property that he owned personally or they were owned by LPI in which the estate had no interest. The proceeds from some of those sales were applied to loans for which Sherry's property had been cross-collateralized. Mr. Spurlock does not point to any specific prejudice to the heirs due to those sales or any way in which Jim advanced his interest at the expense of the heirs' interests. Jim is not compelled by any law to sell all of his own property before selling any of the estate property for the payment of the estate's debts. End of quote. The opinion reasoned there was no definite and firm conclusion that the trial court erred. End of decision.